consecrate us now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. May our souls look up with a steadfast hope, and I will be lost in thine. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's a delight to be here at the Long Point, Long Point View Baptist Church. If I added another word in there, that's all right. I'm glad to be here. It's good to um, worship with you, brothers and sisters, who I will spend eternity with. Thank you, Dr. Wade Humphreys, again. I don't take this uh, invitation for granted. Um, to come to a place where the Word of God is pre preached faithfully every Sunday uh, is a significant privilege for me. Uh, you are not used to sermonic, uh, sermonic happy meals and snacks. You get an appetizer, sermonically, a five-course meal, sermonically, and even dessert, sermonically, every Sunday. And so I don't need to come here knowing that uh, you have been uh, misfed, so to speak, and you've been eating from scraps. In fact, eating junk, and I have to give you an exegetical enema before I can even start feeding you. <laughs> the word is being preached faithfully. I'm proud of you and what God is doing in your life and in this ministry and in your family. Uh, I've got my health today. My wife was not with me the first service. But my help is here. I want my help, Dr. Wanda Taylor Smith, to stand, let everybody see how pretty you are so you can get on me about this after the service is over. <laughs> Let's give her a hand. I'm going to already tell you that uh, I'm going to be more inclined to look that way. So it's not uh, neglecting you, but there's something magnetic um, about my preaching when it comes to her being present. And uh, she, through her facial expressions and her bodily movements and all that, encourages me in preaching the gospel. I'm going to read one verse. This is not customary uh, of me, but I'm going to read one verse today for various reasons. And I want to walk through all of the verses. Joshua chapter 2, I'm reading one verse. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. I want to talk about rated aura for redemption. Rated aura for redemption. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially at Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. One of the greatest obstacles to the acquisition of the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible. 
What keeps us from knowing more about the Bible is what we think we already know about the Bible. And so when I read a text like this, it's the temptation to put your mind in cruise control because you've heard this text. You've taught it. It's been taught to you. You know the story. So what can be revealed to you that's innovative, that's fresh, and that's new and different? And therefore, uh, there is the temptation to accept it and to close your mind and to say, I'll see you at the benediction. But I hope you will not do that this morning. I hope you'll take this text and crawl up into the cranium of Yahweh, that is, the cranium of God, with this text, and stay there long enough until this common text becomes uncommon, until this familiar text becomes unfamiliar, until this mundane text becomes magnificent, and until this simple text becomes stupendous, and you enter into it in a different way. Because the greatest obstacle to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible. God wants to speak a fresh word to you and to me from this text, even today. I believe that for every New Testament doctrine, there is an Old Testament picture. For every New Testament doctrine, there's an Old Testament picture. And the New Testament doctrine that is under uh, consideration for this morning is the New Testament doctrine of redemption. Redemption. That word redemption evokes the image of slavery. To buy back. And none of us can talk about slavery experientially. My wife can't. I can't. I've never seen an auction block. I am not a first-generation slave, and you are not. And yet, the doctrine that's under consideration is redemption. It's slavery. It's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, neither from the aimless, aimless conduct received from tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or without blemish, that God has redeemed us, brought us back. Now that word redemption may not mean much to most young people. I lived in the day and time, and I won't talk about it, uh, where we redeem top value stamps. My mother did all the time. S&H Green Stamps, Redemption, Redemption Center. But there's something greater than that. I think that we ought to retain the theological dictionary. Keep these words that are in the Bible. Propitiation, keep that. Atonement, keep that. Sanctification, keep that. Redemption, keep that. Justification, keep that. Glorification, keep that. Redemption, keep that. And though we keep the theological dictionary so that those words always mean what they've always meant, we can add to the theological vocabulary so that words 
in the 21st century can parallel what words written in the Bible have always meant. So maybe the word for redemption, in terms of adding to it, though we keep it, might be the word hostage. Hostage. You know what a hostage is. A hostage is someone who has been kidnapped and kept. A ransom note has been left, and when the person takes and pays a ransom, the hostage is released. Is it possible that Satan had us held up for ransom and the ransom note is left and no one can pay it except God? And therefore, Peter does say, as I've already stated, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus paid the ransom note. We were hostages. And one day, on the cross of Calvary, they hung him high and stretched him wide. And when he died, the veil in the temple was rent. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And when he died and the veil was rent, God was tearing up the mortgage note, the ransom note. And Elvina M. Hall saw the significance of that and picked up her pen of inspiration and dipped it in the ink of illumination and wrote, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So we're talking about redemption. That God has ransomed us. That's the doctrine. I know of no greater Old Testament picture of redemption than Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. That's how chapter 2, verse 1 of Joshua opens up. Rahab, the prostitute. The two spies entered Jericho and went into the house of Rahab, the prostitute. In fact, just about every time her name is mentioned, there is that dubious designation. Rahab, the prostitute. Chapter 2, verse 1. Rahab, the prostitute. Chapter 6, verse 17 of Joshua. Rahab, the prostitute. Chapter 6, verse 22. Into the house of the prostitute. Verse 25. Whose name is Rahab. Well, she cannot escape that dubious designation in the Old Testament. Perhaps she will fare better once she gets to the New Testament because there's grace there, marvelous grace of our loving, of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our guilt and our, our sin, sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. But when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, surely those who have been saved by faith will share that dubious designation, but Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with the disobedient because she received the spies with peace. And then James, in James chapter 2, verse 25, says, Rahab, the prostitute, was justified by her works because she welcomed the spies and sent them another way. She just can't escape her past. And yet that seems to be 
the story of the great personalities of scripture. Here is Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. His name means deceiver, trickster, wrestler, supplanter. And yet he wrestles with the divine presence to the point that his name is changed. And his name is no longer Jacob. His name is now Israel, which means God fights. God contends. And God wins through this former deceiver, wrestler, supplanter, and trickster. And yet we always call him Jacob. Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman the leper. And yet when he dips in the Jordan River seven times, his skin changes. And he asks Elijah for some of the dirt in Israel that he might take it back. And build an altar to the one God. Because he's the true God in all the earth. But we still call him Nehemiah the leper. Mary Magdalene in Mark chapter 16 verse number 9. And Mark says, Mary Magdalene took the message from Jesus to the disciples. She's the one out of whom seven devils were cast out. And we never can forget the fact that this is a woman who was infested with seven devils, dominated with seven devils. She's always Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven devils were cast. Even Zacchaeus, that wee little man, that director of the internal revenue of Jericho. In Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says, you are now a son of Abraham. But we still call him Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who deceived and took advantage of his own people. And Doubting Thomas? Why do we continue to call him Doubting Thomas when in John chapter 11 verse 16 he is willing to die even if Jesus has to die? And yet we say he's Doubting Thomas. Paul struggles with the past in terms of his own struggle with what he had done. I know what he says. He says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 13 and 14, I'm not yet apprehended, neither am I already perfect, but I'm forgetting the things which are behind, and I'm reaching forth to the things which are before. I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And yet he still calls himself the chief of sinners and the least of the apostles. That dubious designation remains. He speaks to those Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Who think that certain individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God and certainly they're going to inherit it. So Paul begins to enumerate uh, some of them. This is not an exhaustive, comprehensive list. He says, do you not know that certain people will not inherit the kingdom of God? He names some of them. Adulterers, idolaters, those who are drunkards, uh, sodomites, he names. He says those who are extortioners and those who are fornicators and those who are homosexuals. And those who are individuals who slander, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can imagine these Corinthians looking down their noses at those individuals and saying, I know that we'll get in. And Paul says, but such were some of you. But now you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the power 
of Jesus Christ and in the name of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, Paul is saying, all of you once were that, but because of what God has done, he's trans you from, transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And none of us can sit here today blemishless and guiltless on our own accord. We are part of the once were group. We were part of the once lived individuals. We are the John Newton's group. Amazing Grace, who wrote that song, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once, hear that, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I'm glad to be a part of I once was, but now I am, because that's what God has done. We once were, but we now are because of what he has done. When the prodigal son came home, the father threw a great party, and uh, the, the elder brother didn't want to accept that. But the father said to him, your brother once was lost, but is now found. Once was dead, but is now alive. I wonder if there's anybody here aside from Robert Smith and Wanda Taylor Smith who belong to the once was. That we once were, but now God has made us to be who we now are. Shackled by a heavy burden, beneath a load of guilt and stain. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. Since I met this blessed Savior, since he cleansed and made me whole, I'll never cease to praise him. I'll shout it while eternity roll. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. I can't figure it out. I can't analyze it. It's too mysterious. Something happened, and now I know he touched me. And made me whole. If you're sitting here right now and you know that there are entries in your diary that you would like to just snatch out, white out, you don't need to do that. They've already been washed out by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, the bliss of being saved. Oh, the bliss of knowing that you are his child, that your sins Oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, I hear reports all the time in terms of testimonies, and they're always about something physical and spiritual. New car, an upgrade on something, a raise in your salary, a purchase of a home, all of those things can be repossessed and all those things are going to be taken away from you. But to be forgiven and to be saved and to be redeemed is greater than anything that you have because one of these days when life is over, you're going to have to give everything up. When I was a little boy, I just remember playing the game of Monopoly and I loved accumulating houses, properties, vehicles. I had all that stuff to the side, bragging about, look at all my acquisitions. But when the game was over, everything went back in the box. One of these days when life is over, everything you have will go back in the box. And you and I won't be able to take anything with us. And the only thing you have is your relationship with Jesus Christ, which cannot be garnished nor repossessed. Saved for now, saved forever.
And here is Rahab the prostitute who can't seem to shed that dubious designation. The name Corey Tinbaum concerns my, my thought right now. You know Corey Tinbaum, who was a survivor of the Holocaust? She and her sister and family were in the concentration camp under Adolf Hitler. And Betsy, of course, will die in the concentration camp. Corey will be released, will go on to teach and to preach. And in the film, The Hiding Place, which was popularized by Billy Graham Association, Evangelistic Association, uh, it shared her experience in Munich, Germany, when she was preaching and teaching. And after the service was over, one of the SS troops, one of the German guards who stood at the entrance of the shower where the women uh, were stripped naked and uh, their clothes were piled up. And these SS troops sneered and laughed at them, made fun at them, ridiculed them, uh, came to this service. And after the service was over, walked up to her and says, isn't it wonderful to be redeemed and forgiven? And uh, he began to commend her sermon. And the Lord said to her, you've been preaching forgiveness, teaching forgiveness, now execute it. He reached out his hand to shake her hand, and she couldn't reach her hand out to meet his hand. And she prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, you've got to do what I can't do. And she said in that moment from her shoulder blade, she felt what seemed to be an electrical current going down her arm, down her hand, so much so that she was able to shake the hand of the one who had helped to execute her sister and other family members. She had quoted from Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12 many times. To paraphrase that, which really says that when God forgives us, he cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, so that they never rise to condemn us. She says what that really means is that when God forgives us, he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he takes and puts a no fishing allowed sign on the banks, which means nobody can purchase a license to fish up your sins. In fact, you can't even purchase a license to fish up your own sin. You have no right to be in a state of unforgiveness. God has forgiven you. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we are redeemed. God has bought us back. The name Lucy Marion Tolliver Roberts may not mean much to some of us. She was the mother of Robin Roberts, the anchor woman of Good Morning America News. Back in August of 2012, she told her daughter, Robin, who of course was struggling with breast cancer and was scheduled to have an operation in October 2012, she said, uh, Robin, cancer has made a mess of your life, but make your mess your message. Make your mess your message. Now, I want to baptize that statement and move way beyond what she meant. Make your mess your message. Lucy Marion Tolliver Roberts would die August the 30th, 2012. Roberts, uh, Robin would have um, breast cancer surgery in October and the Lord has blessed her today that she's returned back to active life uh, and active uh, newscasting, etc. But that message ought to speak to us today. Make your mess your message. I don't care what has happened in your life. God wants to use your mess 
for a message. In fact, you can't spell a Messiah without mess. The Messiah came to get us out of mess. That's what Matthew one twenty one says. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Uh, I only share these things at certain moments, and I'll share it today. The moment that's frozen in time for my wife and for me is the date, among others, October the 30th, 2010. When we were in Baton Rouge, Breadstick, Louisiana, and a wonderful day I experienced that day, preaching and teaching and lecturing, and that night we'd gone to the hotel, retired after having a great dinner. Early that morning, the phone rang just after midnight sometime. She answered it, did not say anything for what seemed to be an interminable amount of time. Then I asked her when she hung up the phone, what's wrong, baby? Because people don't call you at 1 o'clock in the morning just to uh, joke. She says, it's Tony. Tony is our youngest son, 34 years of age. She says he's been shot, shot at his restaurant where he was working, Richie's restaurant in Cincinnati, Ohio. Our second son, Mark, went over to the restaurant to see how things fared with Tony. Less than an hour, Mark called back. She gave me the phone. Mark said, Daddy, it's him. The coroner's office has just arrived to put his body in the body bag and to take him to the coroner's office. Uh, four young men had broken into the store on that night. Uh, really not broken into it. It was open, open late, but came in with masks on. They tried to get money out of the, the safe, but jammed it. Tried to get it out of the, the uh, cash register, but jammed it. And Tony was in the back frying chicken and potatoes and so forth with his earplugs in his ears, listening to music and not recognizing what was taking place. They came back to get him. Tried to get him to open up the cash register, but he could not because it was jammed. Three of them left, but one remained and stood on top of the counter and fired one shot into his body that caused Tony to transition from time to eternity. It was a mess. And yet God is causing the mess of our lives to be turned into his message. The Lord spoke to me. I eulogized our son. But the Lord spoke to me. Robert, you've been talking about forgiveness all these uh, years. You've been exegeting forgiveness. You know the word for forgiveness. You've preached on forgiveness. Now I want you to preach forgiveness with your life. Turn the ink of forgiveness into the blood of your life. God impressed upon me to write the young man who was 17 years of age at that time who took the life of our son, Tony. I eventually wrote him. It took him a long time before he wrote back. This is the first letter that I received from him. First off, Mr. Smith, let me say that I am truly sorry for your loss. I really am. Also, I hope that this is really you that I'm writing because I have received a lot of threat mail from your family members and friends. So that's why I never wrote back. But today I thought that I should give it a try because I really wanted to talk to you. I just felt that it would be a waste of time to write you back and it was another person threatening me. 
Well, I've been locked up for three years now and the worst three years of my life. I don't think that I'll make it much longer. You know, I grew up in church my whole life. I just hung with the wrong crowd on that night. I'm sorry. You probably know my pastor. He sent me pictures of the pastor. I know exactly what the church is outside of the Cincinnati uh, area. And then he says, this prison is not for me, but there's a consequence for everything in life. I would write more to you, but I'm not sure this is really you. Or if this is someone playing games, I hope to hear from you very, very soon. And thank you, Mr. Smith, for forgiving me. Can you keep praying for me too? This is just getting too hard for me to bear. And sometimes I feel just like giving up on life. And I wrote him back and told him how much I loved him in Christ. And told him that God had planned for him whenever he got out of prison. He wrote me back. He said, dear Mr. Smith, receiving this letter from you really took a lot of stress off of me and sorry for taking so long to respond back towards your letter. Well, today is another day. I'm blessed to be here and to talk to you. Also, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. I really am sorry. And thank you for forgiving me and praying for me. Now, Mr. Smith, I always wanted to contact you to apologize for the pain and hurt I caused towards your family and towards you. But I also want to know, what's your reason for staying in contact with me? I'm okay for staying in contact with you, Mr. Smith. But why do you want to Stay in contact with me. Also, do you have any family members in prison? He's concerned about his well-being. If you do, where are they housed, if you don't mind? I'm doing okay, and I always pray for you and your family every day and ask the Almighty God for forgiveness. Also, if you can, can I get a picture from you, Mr. Smith? I can get three photos in an envelope. How would a person like me, Mr. Smith, Go to a school like the one you teach at whenever I get out. Well, I'm about to go to sleep. Hope to hear from you soon. Sorry. Oh, and can I call you? Well, I wrote him and let him know. The reason why I stay in contact with you is because God took a man like Moses who murdered someone and made him a great liberator. And God took a man like David who was a murderer and adulterer and made him a great king. And God took a man like Paul who gave consent for the stoning of Stephen and made him the greatest preacher this side of Christ and that God can use even pain to work out his cause. And I'm convinced today that there is no depth that any person can go, that God can bring that individual up. He not only saves from the uttermost, he saves from the guttermost. I'm here to tell you that forgiveness is not difficult is just impossible without God. Forgiveness is not difficult, is just impossible without God. You can't do it. And the greater the hurt, the greater the grace you and I will have to have. No wonder Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Archbishop of South Africa, were writing this book, No Future, let me get on, Without Forgiveness, in which he says, forgiveness takes the sting out of memory, takes the sting Sting out of memory. Now, it does not eradicate memory. But that sting, that poison, that vendetta, that desire to wish the ill will of someone, God takes it from you so that you can love in spite of what someone has done to you. 
Because forgiveness is ultimately not for the offender. It's for the person who's been offended. Who needs to, be for, who needs to forgive is the person who's been hurt. You can't live with envy. You can't live with poison. You can't live with a desire to be vindictive. And it's so wonderful to know that God, even though he didn't spare my son and my, our son, my wife's son, my son, our family's member, he showed us how much he loved us because John says, or Paul says in Romans 8, 32, God who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, shall he not freely with him give us all things? And he spared us. And Jesus died in our place. Let me move on. I'm just here to tell you that no matter what has happened in your life, God can take your mess and use it for a message. If you've been abused and accused, God can use you. If you've been broken and belittled, befuddled and baffled, God can use you. If you've been castigated and criticized and ostracized, God can use you. If you've been defeated and depleted and divorced and dejected, God can use you. If you come to a place where you're frustrated and you feel like you're a failure, God can use you. A potter saw a vessel that had been broken by the wind and the rain, and he sought with great compassion to put it back together again. But I was that broken vessel that no one thought was any good. And I cried, Lord, you're the potter, I'm the clay. Make me over again today. And that's when Jesus picked up the pieces of my broken heart that day and made me a new vessel and revived my soul again. Some of you are sitting here right now. You were voted in high school the most likely not to succeed. Some of your marriages were not supposed to last as long as they have lasted. Some people didn't think, number one, you should get married. And they had already predicted that it wouldn't last for six months. Some of you have been told by doctors that the diagnosis is bad and the prognosis is worse. And you only have a few months to live and you've outlived that doctor that gave you that bad diagnosis and prognosis. Some of you have had financial reverses. Some of you have experienced the very doldrums of defeat. And yet God's turned your life around. And God has picked you up. And God has blessed your life. And God has given you joy. And God has redeemed you. That's why when you come to a place like that, you don't come here to sightsee. You don't come here to be a spectator. You come here to be a participator. You come here to give God praise. You come here to worship God. You come here to thank God because had it not been for the Lord on our side, where would we be? Rahab, the prostitute. Now, let me get to the text because this is part A. Part B is tonight. Don't worry about it. It's okay. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. Joshua sends two spies from Shittim, where they are camped, and they make their way across the Jordan River. And these two spies enter into the city, and they want to be undetected so that they can be anonymous and be incognito. They enter the house of a prostitute whose name is Rahab, the prostitute, right? Two spies. It's almost as if Joshua has learned a lesson from Moses. Moses sent out 12, and only two came back with a positive report. 
Caleb and Joshua. It's as if he is saying to pastors and leaders everywhere, uh, if you want to guarantee that little will be done, put too many people on the committee. <laughs> he only puts two. And these two go and enter the house of Rahab the prostitute. She talks to them. The Bible says she hides them on top of the roof, covers them up with flax. And then there is the reality that they have been detected and reported to the king of Jericho. And the king of Jericho sends members of the JPD, the Jericho Police Department, to Rahab's house to ask, where are these spies who came into your house? She doesn't deny that they came into the house. She just says they have left. And if you take Anne, go after them right away and go toward the hills, you'll find them there. That is a bald-faced lie. They were on top of the roof. She lied. Did God need her to lie? Remember, she's in the hall of faith, Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. Did God need her to lie in order to save these spies and for Jericho to fall? No. And yet her faith is faith, but it's a flawed faith. It's flawed. It's not fully developed yet. Be patient with her. The father of the Jewish faith, who is the father of our faith, Abraham, when he came from Ur of the Chaldees, got to Canaan. And he had left the breadbasket of all the earth. And when he got into Canaan, there was a famine. He wanted something to eat. He took his wife, Sarah, down to Egypt. And when the Pharaoh kept looking at her and saw how fine she was, he started thinking about his own welfare and said, this is not my wife. This is my sister. And yet God used Abraham with flawed faith. We don't have much patience with people. We want folk to get saved and be fully mature right away, particularly young people. And they come into the church because we want to take and clean the fish before we catch the fish. Stop trying to clean the fish. That's not your job. It's not my job. It's my job to be fishers of men and women and boys and girls. It's God's job to clean the fish. And so when you look at them, maybe their dress is a little high. Maybe their hair is not what you think it ought to be. Maybe their language is not as chaste as it ought to be. That's okay. Catch them. Watch God clean them. In fact, I'm looking at the several hundred people right now who still are not completely clean. God is not finished with you. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. When God gets through with me, I shall come forth as pure gold. And we've got to be patient with each other and encourage each other along the way. And here Rahab lies, and yet look at her faith. When these JPD personnel leave, she goes on top of the roof and says to the spies, come on down, let's talk. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I didn't reveal your whereabouts. What are you going to do for my family? I've got a mother, father, sister, brothers, and I have extended family. How will you save my family? And they said, if you take this scarlet cord, this red cord that has redemptive symbolic significance and put it in the window, then when we tear down the city, then you and your family who live and reside in this house will be spared. What a significant word. Listen to her testimony in verse number 11 of chapter 2. She says, 
we already know what your God has done. He's defeated the two Amorite kings, Og and Sihon. And our hearts are melting with fear. And we know, verse number 11, that your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth below, which means God is sovereign. God is in control. What faith from a prostitute that your God is sovereign? Where'd she learn that from? Sunday school? I doubt it. God has revealed through natural manifestation that he is in control and that he is king. And then the Bible says, she will let the men out through the window. What an ingenious way of redemptively saving these spies. Because the Bible says in Genesis, or in Exodus, or, or, or I know you're doing Genesis, I'm still thinking about that, Joshua chapter 2, verse number 5, uh, that at dark, uh, the gates were shut. Verse 7, the gates were shut. Chapter 6, the gates of Jericho would be shut. And if the gates are shut, the doors are shut, how do the men escape? They escape through the window. And when all the doors are shut in your life and there is no escape, God will open a window. Don't worry about it. Some of you are sitting here right now who can respond and say, in the words of the song, God specializes. Have you any rivers that you think are uncrossable? Do you have any mountains that you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things that seem to be impossible. And he will do what no other power can do. When the doors are shut, God will open a window. Now let me end here and just make this part A. I wanted to go further, but this is part A. I told the crowd this morning that in 48 years I've never finished a sermon. So this is going to be the end of this. Semicolon, not period, but semicolon. It looked like all the doors were shut, and they were on us. But it came to salvation because we were guilty. And we were separated from God. No way to go to God. Our works did not merit salvation. But God in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 and 4, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And when there was no door open, he opened the window and provided salvation for us. So much so that we can say, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Redeemed. Redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed. Redeemed. His child and forever I am. She is rated R for redemption. And so are 